Earlier this year, the Department of Health and Human Services announced the creation of the Conscience and Religious Freedom Division within its Office of Civil Rights. The purpose of the new division is to ensure that no health care providers are coerced into participating in activities that would violate their consciences, such as abortion, sterilization, or assisted suicide. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Lisa Harris, an Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology at the University of Michigan. Dr. Harris has written a perspective article about conscience protections and the nuances of on-the-ground caregiving experiences. Dr. Harris, are there any data on how often healthcare providers are coerced into providing contested care or are disciplined for not providing it? Is there actually a need for this new division? Well, it's an excellent question because at the heart of the new HHS division's mission is an, an assumption that there is a need for such protections. And as I answer, I want to make sure that we're thinking about coercion or pressure to perform services in a really broad, roomy way because coercion or pressure can come in many forms. I think the understanding at the basis of the new HHS division is that healthcare providers might be coerced into participating in care that they personally disagree with, like abortion care, like the things that you listed. But I also want to make sure that when we talk about coercion, we're also talking about caregivers being pressured or required by law or policy to say or provide care, specifically abortion care, in a way that's not backed by medical evidence. And I also want to make sure we talk about pressure or coercion to not provide care that their consciences dictate. So pressure comes in many forms, to repeat what I said earlier. And we know different things about each of these different kinds of coercion. So to speak to the first one, to my knowledge, there are not systematic analyses of cases where healthcare providers are coerced into providing care. There are a few cases that I'm aware of, cases that have been reported in the news media over the past decade. And Roger Severino, who heads the Office of Civil Rights at HHS, has said that in the year since the 2016 election, there were 34 cases reported to HHS, although no details have been released about those. In my own research, I've encountered isolated cases where healthcare providers were not so much coerced but felt pressured to provide care. So that's the extent of the data that I'm aware of. And because the numbers are small, some critics of the new division have said that it is, to quote them, a solution in search of a problem. But I do still think that it's important to consider whether there is a need for it or not. There are better data on coercion to do or say things that one ordinarily wouldn't. There's some data, especially out of North Carolina, showing the burden on healthcare providers when they're required to say things about abortion by state law that are not supported by medical evidence. There are some states like Arkansas, Utah, South Dakota, and this week, Idaho, where abortion providers are required to say that medication abortion is reversible, though there are not reliable data that it is. And there are other states where abortion providers are required to say that abortions associated with breast cancer or mental health effects when that information is not accurate. And indeed, the recent National Academies of Medicine report that just came out confirmed that there are not long-term effects. And just to conclude my thoughts, there are data that healthcare providers are pressured or coerced to not provide care that they would like to. And as many of half of people who are trained to provide abortion care don't do to a range of pressures like family would not approve, office staff wouldn't participate. So I guess what I'm saying is that if we care about coercion and the pressures that healthcare providers face, I would like to do that in a well-rounded, holistic way.
So looking at it from the angle of patients, what options do patients have when nurses or physicians refuse to provide contested care? Are there times when lack of access because of conscience protections becomes a real concern? Yes, absolutely. The best answer to your question about patients' options in the face of a refusal to care is that it depends. And it depends on a few things. It depends on whether the care refusal is accompanied by a referral for care, so whether that healthcare provider's personal objection to the care translates into not wanting to help at all. It depends on where in the country or where in the world really someone is. In the U.S., it really depends on urban or rural settings, as it is about 40% of women live in counties where there are not, for example, abortion providers, and many more live in states where there is only one provider. So the options are really limited in those settings. It certainly depends on whether patients have financial resources and are able to travel to provide care or transfer themselves elsewhere for care. And it depends also on how ill or sick they are. So if they're, for example, hospitalized and there's a refusal to provide care and they're too sick to transfer themselves or request a transfer, then obviously that would get in the way of care. In your article, you talk about the 1973 Church Amendment, which had nearly unanimous congressional support, and it included discrimination protections both for workers who participated in contested care and for workers who didn't. So how did we get from that point to where we are now, where bipartisan collaboration on anything related to abortion seems virtually impossible? It's really a good question. Part of my answer to that question is that I observe a remarkable lack of bipartisan collaboration on many issues now, not just abortion. So this may be partly symptomatic of the era that we're in and not just the topic of abortion. We seem to be at a time when we have litmus tests for participation in communities or in political parties, and we tend to demonize people who believe differently from us. And abortion is one of those issues, but it is not the only one. It's also such an interesting question because our current partisan lines on abortion are not inevitable, and they're not true historically. In the U.S., there used to be more genuine bipartisan support for abortion access, and abortion support could not necessarily be predicted by party lines, that really it was through the 1960s that access to abortion was supported by many Republicans, and many Democrats did not support abortion rights, in particular Catholic Democrats. And that has moved. Now, party identification really dictates feelings and voting on abortion. And I guess what I'm calling for is more of a commitment to meeting on-the-ground needs of people in communities rather than meeting litmus tests and adherence to party lines and really more faith in the lived experience of constituents. I would also like to see, and I did say this in the article, that we can tolerate one another enough, meaning that we can collaborate with people who don't believe the same things as us, in order that we can then work towards some other shared purpose that might end up reducing abortion rates if that was important. I'm not saying that to stigmatize abortion, but to say that I would like to see more efforts to work collaboratively across ideological lines. One aspect of that is something you've emphasized in the past, the fact that clinicians who do provide abortions and other types of contested care are also motivated by conscience. So how has that argument been received? There's variability in how the argument was received, but I guess I should say that I'm not actually even comfortable calling it an argument because I didn't set out to make an argument. I set out really just to describe real life, to describe my own lived experience of including abortion in my work, and to describe what I saw as the lived experience of the community of doctors and nurses and advanced practice clinicians that I worked with. And although, you know, I published that piece in a scholarly journal, 
it reads like an abstract philosophical argument about conscience and about positive and negative claims of conscience. But really, it was an attempt to give voice to lived experience, meaning that given the stigma and harassment and marginalization within medicine that so many abortion providers feel, there are really not a lot of good reasons to provide abortion care unless one feels called to it, meaning morally called to it. So I was giving voice to my own experience and what I saw in the experiences of others. The response among the family planning community has been largely thanks. Sometimes it was a sense of, well, yeah, of course, duh, that's so obvious. And in a way, that's true. It's just that it hadn't quite been articulated in that way, I think. And there are other people who just disagree and argue that we don't need to recognize conscience in provision. We don't need to protect it legally because abortion provision for any reason is already protected by the Supreme Court's decision in Roe versus Wade. So we don't need any other provisions because you don't have to provide from conscience. You can provide for any reason at all. And I would say that with the dramatic expansion of abortion regulations, state-level regulations in the past decade, that that's not necessarily true, that provision is protected. I would say in many places it's not. And I've been most grateful for the responses of people who oppose abortion but do take conscience very seriously, who've been willing to say, you know what, yes, everybody has a conscience, and conscience can lead two people to different conclusions about what is morally right or morally wrong. So it's those people in the middle who were not predisposed to love what I said in that paper or hate what I said in that paper, but who were really willing to engage with the ideas in that paper. Those are the responses that have felt really gratifying to me. So finally, what role can healthcare providers play in helping to shape the debate about complex issues like abortion? Is there a place for their voices and their lived experiences in these debates? Well, my hope is that there is, and that's why I wrote that piece, really. I feel very strongly that healthcare providers' voices are important in this debate, and not just this debate, but in many of the debates that polarize and divide us at the moment. And healthcare providers' voices are important, number one, because they are overall trusted and in national surveys of what kind of professionals the public trusts. Doctors and nurses are right up there at the top. And indeed, they're higher than politicians and advocates. So that alone speaks to the need for the experiences of healthcare providers to shape these debates. I think healthcare providers' voices are also important because our primary commitments are to our patients, not to ourselves or not to political affiliations. I mean, that is when bioethicist Ed Pellegrino called medicine a moral community, he was describing that what our work is about is not us, and it's not to advance our own needs, but to be worthy of the trust of other people and advance their well-being. I think it's important for healthcare providers to have a voice because we can elevate our patients' voices, and it's not always reasonable to expect patients to advocate for themselves. And I'd say the last two reasons I think that it's important to have a voice is that, as I said in the paper, on-the-ground experiences in healthcare don't always or even don't usually look like political rhetoric. They are much more complex and nuanced and full of shades of gray. And to the extent that doctors and nurses and other healthcare providers can inject, can add those gray elements to conversation, I think it would be really helpful. And perhaps the last thing I'd say is just that compassion and empathy are parts, deep central parts of being a caregiver. And compassion and empathy seem to me to be what is missing from a lot of public conversations currently. 
So to the extent that healthcare providers can bring those qualities to public conversations and to public discourse, maybe we'll be able to model that approach to each other more generally. Thank you, Dr. Harris.